Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Optive Theology Podcast. I'm Andy Schmidt, and I'm back with Jim Benwald and Dr. Russ Humphreys. Thank you guys for coming on the podcast again. Hey, you're uh, welcome. <laughs> so this, so we dropped a podcast, what was it, like two weeks ago, maybe three weeks ago, about how was the earth created, and we got a ton of very positive fe- pe- feedback. People loved it. They loved hearing from you too. And I was like, well, I, I got to get these guys right back on here so they can keep talking about it. I think um, one of the, th- there's two things that, that two questions that uh, quite a few people kind of asked me about, they wanted to go more into the starlight theory that um, Russ was talking about. And, I, and so um, that's what we're going to do today. And then they also wanted to learn a little bit more about carbon dating and how like modern scientists are using carbon dating to say that the earth is billions of years old. And, and, and what does all that even mean? And so today's podcast is going to be about um, starlight theory and carbon dating and, um, and yeah, and, and various um, dating methods. And so I think people are extremely interested in this con- in conversation about how old is the earth and some of these um, scientific uh, ideas and theories um, that you guys were bringing up in the last one. So people loved it. I mean, I have gotten more positive feedback from that podcast than any of my other podcasts. So they absolutely love you guys. So <laughs> I, I was like, we got to get these guys right back on here. So um, I, I guess we could just jump right into it. Um, uh, we're going to go right into the starlight theory and, and I'm going to ask Dr or I guess Russ, I'm going to ask you this question is, could you, could you give a kind of an overview on what the starlight theory is um, since that's your area of expertise and we can just kind of jump into it right there. I have got three, count them three Mm -hmm. (laughs) uh, uh, theories about how God got the starlight here in a hurry on the fourth day of creation, ordinary length day. uh, And, uh, The first two theories use a lot of science and Einstein's general theory of relativity. And they talk about time dilation a lot. But I've gotten convicted that uh, I haven't been paying enough attention to what the Bible actually says about how God got the light here. And so what I'd like to do tonight is just uh, have everyone go through Genesis chapter 1 with me. So uh, if you're listening, uh, I suggest that uh, you pause and, uh, and go get your Bible and turn to Genesis chapter 1. And I'm assuming that I don't have to pause also, so I'm going to go right ahead. Go ahead. I'm grabbing okay. my Bible. But... Uh, go. Now, I'm just going to uh, touch a few points here in Genesis chapter 1. Uh, the bottom line of what I'm trying to say here is that there's evidence right here in scripture that God uh, speeded up this uh, light by a factor of about a trillion times what it is today. And he speeded it up in the heavens, but not on the earth. He kept the light going at the same rate it now does uh, on earth. And then near the end of the fourth day, He made the light in the heavens slow down to what it is now. Uh, So uh, there's a lot of of, uh, physics to be studied uh, related to those effects. 
but I want to go into the scripture that makes me think that that's how God did things. So speeding up the light in the heavens uh, uh, and then slowing it down on the fourth day means that the light in the heavens can zoom in towards us uh, shortly after God created the stars and, uh, and we would be seeing them. So now how do I get this crazy theory out of Genesis chapter one? Take a look at Genesis chapter one and look at verse six. This is the beginning of the second day of creation. Then God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters and separate the waters from the waters. Now, what waters is he talking about? We're going to have to back up and look at uh, chapter 1, verse 2. Uh, Darkness was on the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was moving over the face or the surface of the waters. It's going to become apparent that God created a big ball of water uh, and much bigger than the earth. And uh, how do I know it was a ball? It's because uh, if you have a lot of water sitting out there in empty space, its own gravity is going to pull it into a sphere. And how do I know it was much bigger than the earth? That's what I'm getting at here with uh, verse 6. He says, let there be an expanse, or in your King James, it's a firmament in the midst of the waters. And uh, so in the midst just means down roughly at the center of anything. So now why is that important? It's because later on, uh, he made the expanse in verse 7 and separated the waters which were below the expanse from the waters which were above the expanse. So the waters below the expanse, we find out on the third day, God turns into the solid earth we now know. So uh, the waters below the expanse were about the size of the present earth, but the waters above the expanse have to be much bigger because this firmament that he's made uh, is down in the midst of the waters. So I hope that's clear. So the waters were much bigger than the earth. And uh, for a reason I'll get into a little later, uh, I think the waters were about several light years above the earth in all directions. So a light year is six trillion miles. It's a lot of miles. Uh, God made the expanse and separated the waters which were below the expanse from the waters which were above the expanse. And it was so, uh, verse 8, God called the expanse heavens. Uh, so we would be uh, know what he was talking about. And he tells us this about three times in the chapter, that the expanse is what we call the heavens. The heavens are just everything that's above the surface of the earth. So that was the uh, second day. And then uh, verse 9, he gathers the waters under the heavens into one place, Let's the dry land appear, and so on and so forth. And uh, so the waters below the heavens become the solid earth. Now let's go to the fourth day, verse 14. Then God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night, and let them be for signs and seasons and for days and years, and let them be for lights in 
the expanse of the heavens. So he's putting the stars into this expanse. Uh, now that means that the expanse has gotten much bigger uh, from the day he made it on the second day to now the fourth day, big enough to hold all the stars. So God made the two great lights, the greater light, that's the sun, to govern the day, and the lesser light to govern the night, and he made the stars. And God placed them in the expanse, in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth and to govern the day and the night and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw well, that it was good. There's a very important uh, verse there uh, in verse 15 there. Let them be for light in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth. And it was so. So the implication there is he made them as lights and and it was so means that you know by the end of this fourth day the light got from way out there to the earth somehow mm -hmm. we so, i think we talked about in the last podcast mm -hmm. maybe but the 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 point of view or the perspective of this of genesis one is from the earth and so when when it says god made it so that means that kind of what you just said, the light got from there to yeah. earth. That's yes. what that means. Yes. Right? He, he wanted the light from the stars and the sun and the moon and the planets mm -hmm. to arrive on the earth, right. to be light on the earth. And, and it was so, so mm -hmm. he didn't waste any time. He got it right here, right away. So that uh, strongly implies uh, that uh, the light was somehow speeded up out there. Mm -hmm. But to, we have to have the speed of light on earth being uh, what it is today in order for the days to be ordinary days of the week. Now, if you uh, want to flip over to a verse in Exodus and hold your place in Genesis, because we'll be back, go to Exodus 20.11. For in six days, Jehovah made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. So right uh, for and aft of this 11th verse, he, he's clearly talking about ordinary length days of the week. Um, and uh, so he says, in verse 11, uh, for in six of those same days, same word in Hebrew, uh, he made the heavens and the earth. He made the whole universe. And uh, so, uh, so these are six ordinary days on earth. Now, uh, here's something you need to know that probably most of you didn't. And that is that the speed of light and the speed of time are connected. If light is fast, time ticks fast. You didn't know that. <laughs> no, I didn't. I'm trying to wrap my head around it right now. So, so what do you mean if how, I mean, does light travel at different speeds? It doesn't it travel at the same speed. No, it no. doesn't. Uh, not even today. Uh, it depends on uh, the gravitational energy of the surroundings. For example, starlight zooming by the sun 
slows down as it passes near the sun and gets into the sun's gravitational field. And then, uh, then it speeds up uh, as it gets away from the sun. So time slows down and speeds up as the light travels through these different by the sun. Yeah, very, very slightly. Yeah. But the uh, uh, point is that uh, it's not the constant that you thought it was. And uh, it depends on the fabric of space itself. Uh, uh, the speed of light is like, you know, waves in a pond. Uh, the, wave, the speed of the waves in the pond are determined by the water in the pond. And so also the speed of light are, is determined by the material medium, which we can't perceive, but which physics says is there and the Bible says is there. That medium determines the speed of light. So, uh, yes, the speed of light can be different uh, in different places and at different times. So, but the point is that uh, on Earth, time was ticking along just at its ordinary rate, according to that Exodus 2011 verse. Uh, the, uh, the, so the speed of light on Earth was slow. But I think say, it, yeah. real quick, I think that's like super interesting that you brought in the Exodus passage, because I don't think we talked about it in the last podcast, but that it seems like it would be very hard for old earth evolutionists and big bang, like people who are also Christians to, to fit that into their theory. Because when, when scripture in Exodus is describing this, they're describing it based off of one 24 hour day. So like as the, as God created the earth in six days, so like, and then, and as you know, as he created the earth in six days, like you work six days and then you have a Sabbath on the seventh day. Like they, like these things seem to work together from Genesis to Exodus. Whereas if you, if I, if I were to believe that the earth was created through billions and billions of years, that would kind of not, it wouldn't work with Exodus then it would just, no, it, he it would, wouldn't, it wouldn't. Yeah. And that's, I think that's interesting. Really cool. That uh, I Exodus 2011 is one I hang my hat on because the context is ordinary days of the week. Uh, and so, uh, so in six of those same things, he made the whole universe. That's very powerful. And uh, the uh, people who want to believe the earth is old have to work pretty hard to fit either uh, a gap into there or a recreation into there. And then uh, I don't know how they deal with the heavens being made. Uh, you know, I, they, they really don't have a good case. Uh, so, well, I think uh, modern versions basically make Genesis Genesis one to be more metaphorical. Oh, mo modern uh, uh, modern people earth. who believe in an old Earth, yes. Mm -hmm. uh, the main uh, the mainstream of thought right now among them is that Genesis chapter one is just pure myth, and we don't have to pay attention to it at all. That's right. Basically. So, <clears throat> so. Uh, Anyhow, so time is ticking along at the ordinary rate here on Earth. But uh, it looks like in the heavens, it was ticking faster because he got the light here in a hurry. And there's another uh, thing to th think about in that regard, uh, that the speed of light was faster in the heavens. And that is that these, this expanse that was in verse 6 
that was in the midst of the waters, very thin, you know, not, I would, I picture it as being less than a mile thick. Um, that somehow had to get big enough to contain the stars. And uh, there's a, another verse that, uh, that confirms me in my insanity. Uh, and that is in Proverbs, I'm sorry, in, in uh, Psalms. Uh, Psalm 148. So again, you may want to pause, keep your place in Genesis, and uh, take a look at Psalm 148, starting with verse 2. Praise him, all his angels. Praise him, all his hosts. Praise him, sun and moon. Praise him, all stars of light. Praise him, highest heavens and the waters that are above the heavens. So those waters that were above the expanse, also God called it the heavens, those waters are, are out there beyond the farthest star. It can, so those waters contain all the galaxies and all the stars. So they're way out there, more than 10 billion light years now, You're according saying, so, to our telescopes. Yeah. To, to be clear, I, like that there is, like I'm picturing it as this, Kind of like this, this sphere that's just going expanding out and out and out. Yes, and it's still. You're saying it's still expanding to this day. No, I'm not sure that it is. I uh, I rather think that the expansion slowed down quite a bit. Uh, when he slowed down light, it would slow down the expansion. So at the end of the fourth day, uh, the expansion is uh, is much slower. So maybe it's still going on, but we're seeing light that uh, was produced. Uh, during uh, the fourth day, uh, way out there. So uh, we're seeing light uh, from the distant galaxies uh, that was produced before the slowdown and, uh, and while the expanding was still going on. So uh, that would produce the red shifts of the light we see in the distant, light from the distant galaxies. Uh, its spectral lines are shifted over toward the red end of the spectrum. Uh, and so uh, the farther the galaxy, the bigger this shift. Uh, so that's called the red shift. And it's a big, uh, big thing to be reckoned with when you're studying the cosmos. Uh, it's something that has to be explained. And we would explain it here just by the fact that things were spreading out from the second day to the fourth day, uh, and God was making the stars uh, during that time. So, and, and they were, you know, everything was moving out, and uh, it's a redshift. Now, think about that, though. During several ordinary days of the week on Earth, from day two to day four, he has gotten uh, this expanse from just above the Earth, and also got the waters above the expanse. He's gotten, he's moved them out there uh, billions of light years away. So the waters above the heavens and the expanse itself moved out at trillions of times uh, today's speed of light. And uh, uh, unless God just totally abolished physics, that means the speed of light had to be uh, greater than the speed with which he moved the waters out. So the speed of light out there, again, had to be very fast. So uh, 
so God made the everything uh, move much faster out there. And you remember I said the speed of time and the speed of light are related. So out there, things are happening much faster uh, than they are right now. You would have billions of years worth of events, the galaxies spinning around, uh, bumping into each other maybe, and uh, lots of interesting things happening. Mm. And uh, he, he wanted us to see those things. He wanted us to see uh, things that would ordinarily take billions of years to develop uh, because he's displaying his glory uh, with the heavens. And I think he wanted us to see all that. So he speeded up time and he speeded up uh, the speed of light so, so that we could see those things. Now, when so, he slowed, yeah, go ahead. I, I think it's interesting. This is a question that I have, though, is like, now there's probably no way to answer this, but if God knew that human beings would get to the point where we can, you know, you know, figure out how long it takes for these events to happen. So you said that these events take billions of years to happen. And um, God wanted to show his glory through these things and have them happen faster than that. And so um, now we're seeing these things and scientists are saying this proves that the earth is billions of years old because, because um, these things could only happen in billions of years. Why? And I don't know, this might be a dumb question, but why would God make it that way then if, if because he, want, that... he wanted you to see what would happen in billions of years worth of development in such a big object. Uh, uh, he wants, wanted us to see uh, the results of that. So in order to, you know, like, uh, for example, we've uh, just now found out uh, uh, of gravitational waves uh, that are produced by uh, black holes bumping into each other and spinning around each other and swallowing each other up. Makes a lot of gravitational waves in the fabric of space. And uh, we've detected those, but there, uh, some of those objects are about a billion light years out. Uh, mm -hmm. And uh, it would take some time for uh, the, the black holes to bump into each other, uh, quite, a, quite a bit of time. So he wanted us to see that physics and uh, have some fun figuring things out. Uh, and so uh, he, he um, made a way for those things to happen fast for us to see them. So, yeah. so we see billions of years worth of events, but they're all elapsing on the fourth day of creation, an ordinary length day. Which I think, oh, go ahead, Jim. One of the things I think is really fascinating with with this theory is that evolutionists believe they assume the universe has no boundary and no center. Yeah. So if you believe in the big bang and you're a physicist, you don't believe that the universe has a boundary or center, which is a little hard for most mortals to understand. Yes. But, but uh, remember that verse, the, in the midst, he made uh, the earth uh, or what was to become the earth. Uh, and the uh, little, the little thin expanse over it, uh, that was in the midst of the waters, which uh, implies that the earth is pretty well near the center of things. It doesn't have to be exactly at the center, uh, but uh, you know, there's probably an equal amount of stars in any direction from us. Uh, but, there, 
And there's a finite number of stars, by the way. Uh, God uh, telleth the number of the stars, or he counts the stars and gives names to all of them. So it's also interesting, uh, to the dismay of the evolutionist or the uh, Big Bang theorist, is uh, that there's evidence that the Earth is near the center of the universe through uh, redshift and the cosmic wave. Uh, Kobe, I think it used to be called. Can you explain those? Well, uh, this is controversial uh, still today, uh, but there appears to be evidence that the, the redshifts from uh, you know, relatively nearby galaxies out to, uh, say, uh, 300 million light years away from us, uh, those are bunched into bunches. And uh, that would be easily explained if there were sort of uh, shells of groupings, groupings of stars and shells, uh, or of galaxies actually, in shells around us, in layered shells. And then their redshifts would bunch uh, uh, also. So, uh, but uh, uh, that explanation only works if the earth is somewhere near the center of all these nested shells. So, but that's, uh, there's still, the, a lot of screaming and hollering going on over, mm -hmm. over that evidence and uh, 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 the dust hasn't settled. So, um, you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't worry about it too much right now. So uh, let's see where we're well, we? real quick. I, yeah. I mean, going back to that, I think it's also interesting that it feels like this also just adds up with the rest of the creation story in, in Genesis. When you're saying that God sped up time, like, okay, so I'm looking at the rest of, of, you know, day one through six and God's creating these plants and animals and humans. And I don't, I mean, it, I don't think that he created, it doesn't, when I read it, I don't think of them being created as like babies and then growing up. It feels like he sped up the time of like creating a human being at its full, like adulthood. Yeah. And then, like creating trees that were already grown and these things that that might even, you know, so that feels like it kind of makes sense. If he uses the speed they, of time, they actually, uh, my friend, Danny Faulkner points out that, uh, he made, uh, the plants grow, uh, out of the ground, uh, during that, uh, during that third day. And, uh, and, uh, he wanted mature plants. So they got there, they were mature within, uh, within that day. So, right. uh, so, uh, just, and he points out that just like the plants growing fast like that. So the starlight could grow towards us, uh, very fast. Uh, so yeah. uh, I have a question into him about whether he thinks the speed of light, uh, was, was bigger, uh, out there. So let's see. So speed of light being faster out there until the end of the fourth day when he would slow down the light everywhere in the universe to what it is here on earth. And, uh, that's what, and he would have to do that sometime because right now, when we look out there, uh, all the evidence is that the, the speed of light out there is about what it is here. Uh, so, uh, 
So that slowdown, though, takes care of the speeding up of things way out there. So that when we look back in time through that interface where he slowed things down, uh, uh, things look normal. Uh, we would not see uh, the light from uh, the atoms of those stars uh, drastically shifted into the blue. They would, they would, uh, the slowing down of the light takes care of all problems uh, so that we, when we look out into the universe, uh, we see no evidence of that change of the speed of light. So, yeah. So now I've told you what I think the Bible says about it, uh, but I have to confess, I don't know how he made this drastic change in the speed of light. Uh, and uh, I think uh, maybe I'll never know, or maybe he will, uh, he will say, look here, Russ, uh, just think about this. So, oh, okay. Yeah. Because uh, there's lots of interesting things that go on uh, in uh, relativity theory that have to do with the speed of light and how fast clocks tick and, uh, and with gravity and uh, lots of other things. So I don't know. Uh, all I know is what it says there in Genesis chapter 1 and these other places I've uh, brought you to in Scripture. So how did he get the light here? He just speeded it up very fast. So, Well, I think that's really good. I think, I think that was, I mean, because I think we like barely touched on it in the last podcast. And, I, and oh, okay. people yeah. were really interested in hearing more about it. And I think that that's really good. I think it's extremely interesting. I've never heard anything like it before. Obviously, they're not teaching that in the public schools, so I, I wouldn't expect to hear anything about it. But it's, I mean, yeah. it kind of blows, blows my mind a little bit because it does feel like it adds up with everything else in Genesis 1. So, so. I'm going to submit uh, this uh, as a, a theory uh, to the Journal of Creation. Uh, you find that on creation.com. It's uh, one of the scientific journals of uh, creation science. And I'm going to submit this theory uh, to them, and uh, it'll be subject to their peer, peer review. And uh, if it survives that, uh, you will be able to find uh, this theory on creation.com uh, sometime, let's say, within a year from now. So, Wow. Is that, I, don't, I don't know. Is that like a big – is creation – is that like a big website, creation.com? Is that? Yeah, that that's, a, that's a, one of the, it's my favorite creation website. Uh, there are a bunch of, of very good ones. Uh, another one is uh, creationresearch.org. Uh, and uh, another one is Institute for Creation Research or icr.org. Uh, those are all good websites. But my favorite is uh, the Creation Ministries International website which is this this creation.com it's a wonderful resource uh anytime you have a, a creation science question you can find very clear layman uh clear for the layman uh not the scientist uh explanations but they're scientifically accurate and often written by scientists uh, it's just that the uh the editors of that website uh, make us scientists speak English. So. so let me say, I, 
Yeah, I frequent these websites myself quite a bit. I find them to be quite comprehensive. So if you have any question, you know, if someone brings up a, a theological problem or scientific issue that you wonder, well, how, do, uh, how does a creationist actually resolve this issue? You could go to creation.com or icr.org or the other website that I use is Answers in Genesis. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Dot org, dot com, I think. <clears throat> and so yeah, I've been on, on answers in Genesis. That's a really good one. I yeah. Like that. They're very, so you can, you know, type in, in the search box, pretty much, you know, any issue and get, get answers. I think that's one of the things that it, it can be very helpful for people to understand. Yeah, for example, uh, on the answers in Genesis website, uh, Danny Faulkner released uh, just a few days ago, uh, his article uh, giving his view about how God let, got the light here and what's, what scriptures he thought was important. Uh, so uh, you can kind of get a preview of my theory, uh, which uh, I think will just encompass his theory, but not supersede it and, uh, and just uh, say more. So anyhow, that's on the Answers in Genesis website. Yeah, some, some free advertising for them. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, did you guys have anything else you wanted to say about Starlight, uh, the Starlight Theory, or anything else you wanted to I think to... we've kind of beat it to death. Did we want to spend a little time on uh, Carbon-14, or yeah. we exhausted the time? No, I, I was just going to shift right over to uh, the dating methods and stuff okay. like that. So Go I, for I mean, that. Can... Go for it. So I would like first... to, be... oh, yeah. just before oh, yeah. we move over, I would lo- love to be able to do a little advertising. So... Mm-hmm. We produced, Evidence Press produced a documentary called Universe Battles. And so this is in DVD format, was just produced in uh, 2019. And it's one of our best projects and want to encourage people to consider checking that out. Me and my roommate, um, Jack Jasper, shout out to Jack Jasper. He, he, me and him are, we're thinking about getting it and watching. I think we're going to do that. We're going to, we're going to, we're going to pay for it and watch it because I, so uh, did, did you say where it would be, Jim? Yeah, it's available. Uh, it's available at, at Answers in Genesis, but it's available at, at evidencepress.com. Okay. And we What's have it available uh, in streaming format. Uh, you can do it as a download or buy the DVD. And it's called? Universe Battles, Big Bang or Big Design. Great. Yeah, I mean, I'm going to watch it, so I'm excited for that. Perfect. And we'll have a link to evidencepress.com in the, uh, in the description of this podcast. So you can just go and click on there and you'll be able to find it pretty easily. Um, so yeah, just kind of shift over to another big question that I was getting after the first podcast was people were interested in hearing more about how, how, how um, six day creationists deal with some of these dating methods that are, you know, saying that the earth is billions and billions of years old. So the first question that we have written down here is why do car, uh, why do scientists say that carbon dating has dated things back millions and billions of years? And um, if whichever one of you guys want to pick that one up, we well, can kind of go. I, I want to pick it up if you don't mind, Jim. Uh, go ahead. Uh, first of all, carbon fourteen decays too fast to prove anything is billions of years old or even millions of years old. Uh, the half life of carbon fourteen is. 5,700 years, you know, a little over 5,000 5, years, let's say. Uh, and half-life means 
the length of time it takes for the carbon. Let's say we have a pound of carbon here in my right hand, and uh, and we wait 5,700 years, uh, uh, we'll have a half pound of carbon-14, uh, and the rest of it will have become nitrogen-14. And we wait another 5,700 5, years, and uh, now we have a quarter of a pound. So at that rate, uh, there wouldn't be a single atom left in any normal size fossil. There wouldn't be a single atom of carbon-14 left in it uh, after about a quarter of a million years, one quarter of a million years. So are you with me so far? Yeah, so, 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 when I'm, so you're saying it kind of maxes out at a quarter of a million years? Uh, <laughs> yes, it maxes out. Uh, there wouldn't be any carbon-14 left sure. in a fossil that was older than a quarter million years. But all the fossils, all the ones that are locked into rocks, are at least 2 million years old. And they can be up to 560 million years for most of them. So uh, uh, there shouldn't be a single atom of carbon-14 left in any of those fossils, right? Well... Uh, Carbon dating labs uh, used to keep this kind of a secret, but every time they have dated a fossil with carbon-14, they have found uh, significant amounts of carbon-14 in it, well above their, their, the threshold of their uh, sensitivity. Uh, they, can, they can see it quite clearly. Uh, so carbon-14 then is saying that those fossils are lots less than millions of years old. And they're more like thousands of years old. Can I give an example? Yeah. I'm interrupting you, I know. Go ahead. All right. <clears throat> so I was involved in a, with a project with the uh, Creation Research Society. Yeah, I believe it was in 2012 that they excavated a triceratops horn. And I believe they had that horn evaluated for carbon-14. This oh, yeah. horn was excavated from... Uh, I forget the the area. It, it's in Montana. It's called the Hell Creek Hell uh, Creek Formation. Formation, yes. and it's in eastern uh, Montana, isn't it? Yeah. Yes. So they they date these things by the layers that they're found in, the layer it's found in. So it's dated to about sixty five, sixty seven uh, million years years old, but these fossils have carbon in them, just like every other fossil that is found. You mean these fossils have carbon-14? All, carbon all fossils have carbon in them, uh, or at least once they had Thank carbon. Thank you for correcting me. <laughs> well, I, do, I don't want people to get uh, carbon-14 confused. That's the radioactive form of regular carbon, and uh, uh, about one, one trillionth of every carbon of the um, let's uh, one out of every trillion carbon atoms in your body today is uh, is radioactive. It's at carbon fourteen instead of carbon twelve. So uh, so so what you're saying is basically when I'm growing up and I'm in biology class and they're trying to you know cram evolution down my throat, they're telling me that you know 
car like that carbon dating and the carbon 14 they proves that these fossils are you know hundreds of thousands if not millions of years old i mean that's what i kind of grew up hearing are you saying that they're are they just lying or like what's why how can they just say that i don't let's understand just, let's just say they're self-deceived uh, i i uh when i was a grad student in physics uh, before i got saved um, I believed in the millions and billions of years, and I believed in it simply because I, I thought that every other scientist believed in it. So I didn't investigate the evidence for myself. Uh, it was just sort of in the air, and I, I picked it up, and, uh, and so I believed in the billions of years just so I can be you know, a credible scientist, and people will believe me, and, uh, and, and uh, you know, I didn't even worry about it. Uh, it. It never occurred to me that maybe there wasn't uh, a lot of good evidence for the billions of years. Most and, uh, scientists are not experts at evolution. They're yeah. experts in their field. Yeah. And they study their field. And then they assume that evolution is true. And in order to get any kind of funding or stay out of trouble, they have to assume and they have to teach that evolution is true. Oh, but even in, within their specialties, uh, they're extremely specialized. Uh, now, I was, uh, I, part of my training had to do with nuclear physics. And, uh, and uh, you, so you'd think that I would have known that carbon-14 uh, had a few problems. Uh, but uh, uh, no, I didn't even know how carbon-14 worked. Uh, it wasn't until I got interested after, as a creationist later on to find out how uh, that theory worked. And uh, so most scientists uh, do not think the Earth is billions of years old because of the evidence. They believe it because they think that's the consensus. <laughs> they go, they're going along with their fellow scientists, and they think their fellow scientists have all done their homework. That's the real irony, uh, you know. Uh, so anyhow, so uh, so I would say they're more self-deceived than anything else. Well, I always found that interesting. And when I was in high school, and I would just ask questions like, "Okay, why?" Like you just ask what teacher, like, "Well, like why?" Like why is it billions of years old? Like what what does it seem? They would never break it down. And just be like because that's what the book says, or like because that's what we're reading. It would never break anything down and, and explain these concepts. So this is the first time that I'm like kind of kind of understanding what carbon dating actually is compared to just like reading it out of a textbook. Yeah, and like you know feeling like I don't actually fully understand it. Actually, yeah. I think most scientists would turn to radiometric dating. Uh, there's a variety of other dating methods besides carbon 14 and Russ is, you'll explain that, right, Russ. Yep. But anyway, the point is that they will, they'll point to uh, various forms of radiometric dating. And then they'll say that, that these forms confirm each other and that they're very reliable. And we know that the earth is so many um, millions of years old, actually billions of years old as a result of, uh, well, I'm not sure if they would say from radiometric dating or if they base it upon the Big Bang model. How do you answer that, Russ? Oh, uh, they believe it because of radiometric dating. Uh, there are some, there are some rocks that uh, give uh, evidence, radio, uh, radioisotope evidence, uh, 
of being over 4 billion years old. Uh, so to get uh, the age of the earth from, from that. Now, I'm holding up uh, something called evidence for a young world. And uh, for some reason, the, uh, the, uh, the image is coming through backwards on my... Oh, it's perfect on my end. Okay. All right. So, uh, so Andy, I'm hoping you will get this uh, little pamphlet up, the PDF on it. Actually, it's not, we don't have a PDF. We have a link to the creation.com website that has uh, pretty much the same article. It's maybe one or two. No, no, I think you need to put up the PDF uh, because this one's better than the creation.com article. Okay. And this is on ICR, but it's on a part of ICR that's very hard to find. Uh, So I could maybe find you the... uh, try to dig up that address again uh okay. while well, figure out i can figure out a way to get it up there and yeah, yeah if I, you find the address let me know i yeah. can help you too cool okay uh so yeah get this at this is it <laughs> this is the ultimate uh and accuracy so anyhow the reason i mention that is uh that two of the items in it item 11 is called too much carbon 14 in deep geologic strata and it goes just uh, through what I just did. Now, item 10 has to do with another uh, method of radioactive decay, which does uh, show us uh, or allege, show us an alleged age of billions of years. So that's item 10, too much helium in minerals. Now, this, this is the result of a project uh, that's called the Radioisotopes and the Age of the Earth project, R-A-T-E for short, and it was uh, seven scientists and one Hebrew expert uh, who uh, different disciplines, and we tackled radioactive decay uh, very carefully. And so the too much helium in minerals uh, was my particular project, and uh, to understand this a bit, you need to know that uranium generates helium atoms as they decay to lead. You've heard of the alpha particles, maybe. You've heard of that. Uh, if you went to school about uh, <laughs> 1960, you'd know that. Uh, so, <laughs> um, uh, you mean back when they uh, actually taught when they actually science taught and science. mathematics? Yeah, yeah. I, I, don't, I, <laughs> I didn't learn it. I'll tell you that. <laughs> I, didn't, I don't know what you, I don't know what that uh, is. The newspapers in the 1960s used to talk about half-lives of radioactive elements, uh, you know, and what we would have from the nuclear bombs and so on. You know, it was right there in the newspapers and everybody knew what a radioactivity half-life was. So anyhow, so when uranium decays to, to lead, it normally takes <clears throat> uh, billions of years to do, to do that. Um, but in a, a certain mineral called zircon that's found in, in granite, uh, you'll find lots of uranium and lots of lead, and you also find the helium from the decay of uranium into lead. Now, if you just look at the amount of lead and the amount of helium, you'd say uh, that one and a half billion years worth of, of decay took place in the particular zircons we looked at. But uh, over 50% of the helium from that decay was still in these tiny little zircons. 
Now, zircon uh, helium is a slippery little atom. It's, uh, it doesn't attach itself chemically to anything, and it's small and lightweight and it wiggles fast. So it's used for leak detection, among other things. But helium should slip out within thousands of years out of this uh, uh, zircon. And we actually measured the rate of, with which helium does leak out, uh, and it confirmed that. So, uh, so we have over a billion years worth of helium still in the crystal, but it should have leaked out within thousands of years. Mm. So the helium leak method tells us that the, um, that the crystals are about 5,000 years old and uh, uh, the uranium to lead method used in the same crystals says one and a half billion years worth of, of decay uh, took place. So the only way uh, the rate scientists could explain this is by saying, well, God must have speeded up radioactive decay uh, by a factor of half a billion during the Genesis flood. So it produced all that lead and it produced the helium, but it's only had 5,000 years or so uh, to decay or to, to get out of the zircons. Am I making sense? Yeah. I mean, it sounds like a lot of this is based off of th like God speeding things up in the, in, well, first it was in creation and now in the, in the flood. Right. Right. And, uh, I don't know of any other way to explain this, uh, conundrum. You've got, uh, billions of years worth of helium, but it's still there. And, uh, and, uh, it hasn't had time to leak out. So, uh, you, we have two clocks, uh, that work on the crystal and one of them is saying uh, 5,000 years and the other is saying one and a half billion years. Uh, so they can't both be right. So um, the easiest thing, uh, easiest way if you're God <laughs> to, uh, to explain this is uh, just to uh, change uh, the rate with which uh, uranium turns into lead. That just affects the tiny little nucleus at the center of the helium or the uranium atom uh, and it doesn't affect the outside shell of electrons which affect biochemistry and uh, and other things so the the easiest explanation is that uh, that god tweaked the rate of radioactive decay and uh, and if there's another explanation for the disagreement between the two clocks i'd like to hear it I don't have an I don't have another explanation. <laughs> Do you, Jim? No. <clears throat> um, so I mean that's that's really interesting. I mean, did you have any other dating um like methods that you kind of wanted to break down or go through? I don't know all of them, you know, off the top of my head, but well, like, the, you... the change of the rate of radioactive decay during the flood would affect not only uranium to lead, but uh a lot of the uh, longer lived um, decay rates, uh, so all of the all of the methods uh, would be affected. So uh, you have God speeding up most decay rates uh, by a factor of a half a billion uh, during the year of the Genesis flood. So uh, layers that were laid down early in that year, say in the first month. Uh, 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 
would have had almost the whole year of, of speeded up radioactive decay to accumulate the daughter products. Mm -hmm. But if you had a layer laid down near the top of the layers during the flood, during the last month of the flood, let's say, then that layer would only have one month to accumulate uh, the daughter products at the higher rate. So the top layer would appear to be much younger than the bottom layer. So all, so all of the radioactive decay rates uh, uh, would be affected uh, uh, simply, you could think of it as a compression or a telescoping. Uh, you know, we, we have crunched millions of years down to months during the Genesis flood. Now, carbon-14 uh, being a light element and decaying fast, uh, according to our, our nuclear theorists who worked on all this, uh, uh, it's not likely that carbon-14 would have been speeded up much. Uh, but the heavy nuclei, the ones that have long, uh, slow decay rates, uh, then uh, those would be affected by the speed up. So there's lots of ins and outs to this. And for the really technically minded person, uh, we have a book uh, called Radioisotopes and the Age of the Earth in, in two volumes. Volume one just sort of scopes out the projects. Volume two gives the evidence. And, uh, and that is a really good book to... Uh, if you're an academician, you, uh, you put that on your shelf and, uh, and you tell your, your friends that you've read that book <laughs> and you understand it. So, but well, uh, for ordinary one... people, it isn't a good book. <laughs> <laughs> right. There's one thing that's running through my head right now as I'm listening um, mm -hmm. to this is that when. So I'm thinking about like somebody who believes in evolution and an old earth listening to this podcast and maybe maybe that what's running through their head right now is that it feels like you're saying quite often that God sped up time and they, and that might be a cop-out answer that that's, I don't think it is, but I'm trying to play devil's advocate right now because I well, want to, if wanna... you get, if you get this pamphlet up there, mm -hmm. uh, evidence for a young world, there's 14 items of evidence. And uh, mm -hmm. I talked about one of those during our last podcast uh, together, which is the accumulation of mud on the ocean floor. And right. that's a fairly simple piece of evidence. That's one of the items, uh, 14 items. And then there's another uh, really good resource. Uh, it's called 101, 101 Evidences uh, for a Young Earth or Young World. If 14 uh, wasn't enough, we, we, there's 101. Yes, yes 101. And uh, that's on that creation.com uh, website. So go to creation.com and look up 101 evidences. And that's enough to find that article. And then you'll find uh, oh, about a paragraph devoted to each evidence and uh, lots of references that you can look up the data for yourself on the internet or go to your uh, local science library and, and uh, look up some of the articles there. So you, can, uh, you don't have to take my word for it. And most of these things don't make any assumptions that God speeded up things. And, and uh, uh, even the helium evidence, I'm, you know, we're trying to explain the evidence by uh, speeding up, but uh, uh, the evidence is there for itself. Uh, one of the two clocks on the zircons gives you 5,000 years. 
So, uh, right now. So I'd like to mention <clears throat> there is uh, some factors that people might be interested in for what what makes radiometric dating to be problematic. Uh, so, for example, radiometric dating uh, has this thing called what creationists would call unprovable unprovable assumptions, meaning that they're making some assumptions. So somebody has a sample from the field and they want to date it. Maybe it's a fossil or a rock and they take it to the lab to have it dated. And the lab is going to ask, well, where, was, where did this fossil or this sample come from? They want to know what layer it came from. They want to know what, um, what is the general age that it's supposed to be found in. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. And uh, so they'll take, they'll take that information and then they'll, they'll run, you know, it's, it's in a mass spectrometer. I, I'm not pronouncing that correctly. How does it? No, you did. You got it. Close enough. All right. So um, what I'd like to do is to describe uh, the metaphor of a candle to help illustrate unprovable assumptions. So let's suppose you walk into a room and there's a candle burning. Well, if this is not your room and, and the candles there burning, you don't know how tall the candle was when it started, when it started burning. Now, what you can do is you can take that candle and you could take some time and measure the burn rate and figure out, well, you know, in, in 10 minutes, it will burn a centimeter or a quarter of an inch or something like that. But there's things you don't know, such as, well, what if, what if there was a fan earlier on, somebody had a fan blowing and it sped up the burning of that candle that could make the burn rate appear to be much faster than what it actually is. So maybe it had only been burning for an hour, but because of the, the wind or the, uh, the fan, it may look like it was burning for 10 hours. So the point of that, that, Russ is bringing up regarding uh, the flood is that the flood enters into this, this whole area, a, a whole set of, of issues that we don't know. They're, they're assumptions that the evolutionist assumes is just simply not there. Right. But a huge assumption, a, a couple of them, one is they assume evolution is true. They assume the earth is old, like really old, like 4.5 billion years old. And right. They assume, and sorry to cut you off. I just love the way that you explained the candle, like a candle burning for 10 hours is going to be assumed to be way bigger of a candle or way longer of a candle than a candle that's been burning for, for an hour. You know what I mean? Like exactly. That makes a lot of sense. I, I like that. Right. Well, uh, there's a Bible verse in Second Peter. 
uh, verse, I think it's chapter three. Uh, and he puts his finger on, on the modern day assumptions uh, that evolutionists make. Uh, so I'm starting at Second uh, Peter chapter 3, verse 3. He says, Know this first of all, that in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lust, and saying, Where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, that is, the uh, early patriarchs of Israel died, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. Uh, that's their assumption. Their assumption that is that everything's been happening normally, and there haven't been any yeah. uh, supernatural interventions, and everything has just happened just the way it has always. And in any comments, he says, for when they main, maintain this, it escapes their notice that by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and by by water, through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. He's saying they ignore, among other things, the Genesis flood. So uh, that's, uh, that's a very uh, important verse. If you ignore uh, there was something like a worldwide flood, then you can say, well, all these, uh, all these layers with the fossil uh, must have been laid down uh, at their current rate, which was very slow, so those layers must represent a long period of time. But if the Genesis flood laid those layers down, all of a sudden, uh, during one year, about 5,000 years ago, uh, then you've suddenly done away with half a billion years worth of, uh, of geologic layers. So, Yeah, I mean, I, that's, it feels like that, I mean, that just hit the nail the nail on the head, because I, I think that a lot of times this is what happens. I mean, if you can't accept that the earth was flooded based off what scripture said, then what, what other parts of scripture are you going to just pick and choose that you believe like, and that's, that's what gets frustrating about, you know, young people saying, well, you can't take the Bible. Literally you have to like blot like the time period it was written and stuff like that. And it's like, if, if it wasn't meant to be taken literally, I don't think it would be the Bible. Like the Bible, like that, the Bible is a, it's, it's a, the only piece of truth um, that we have on this planet that like gives us full truth. And so to say that some of it isn't necessarily true, it's just there for stories to prove a point I, that doesn't really make any sense to me. So I think that is really interesting Yep, that you said that. And the fact the Bible says in several places that it's meant to be clear to everybody. You don't need an expert, an expert in theology or an expert in science to tell you what it means. God intended it to be read by just ordinary people throughout the ages. And so through the uh, lens of yeah. the Holy Spirit, each yes. Christian having the lens of the Holy Spirit, that yes. I think the truths of Scripture will be revealed to them through the Holy Spirit, not through their studies in theology and, and in science. So we don't, uh, you know, there's... A lot of the old earth Christians, the ones who believe in an old earth, except um, they think that the, uh, that the scientists aren't self-deceived and they accept the billions of years as truth. 
and then they set about modifying how we understand the Bible, you know, bending scripture uh, to fit the billions of years. Uh, but what I found is that uh, we can just take the Bible straightforwardly and come up with good science and, uh, and in fact, better science and explain, you know, a lot of scientific puzzles, such as how the helium happens to be still here when uh, if they've had if it's had billions of years to leak out of the zircons. So, uh, so, okay, I, I think I pounded my pulpit long enough. So, well, Jim, did you have something to say about that, or it looked like you might have had something to say? No, no, no. I was just wondering about whether we want to go on to this next topic. I feel like this could be a good last question, the, the DNA um, topic, and kind of talk through that for a little bit, and then sign okay. off um because yeah i mean so last time jim brought up the idea that information is very complex <clears throat> used use the analogy of a heart drawn in the sand with the words i love you in it which i i like that analogy i thought that was really good <laughs> um we discussed the implausibility of how those words and the heart could have been formed by natural causes um you then said how much more difficult would it be for DNA to form by natural causes. And I think that was very interesting because these things don't just randomly happen. And so um, going into kind of more DNA, could you provide some more detail about information in DNA? Sounds good. Now to me, I really love this argument. I, I believe that this is like one of the strongest arguments that we have that can help people understand uh, on one side, just, just the impossibility of evolution that it just, when you, when you understand what's going on in terms of information in DNA, evolution just can't happen. And so I'm hoping to provide enough information here that, uh, that people who are listening, that, that they'll kind of ca catch that vision. So in biology textbooks, there's something called the endosymbiotic hypothesis. And it's, it's the idea that, that there's this more advanced bacterial cell that absorbs, that kind of eats another bacteria cell. And so it doesn't actually absorb it. It doesn't, it, it, it doesn't uh, feed on it in a sense. It's more like a, uh, a, a virus. It's, 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 it's in there, but it hasn't actually consumed it. It hasn't, it hasn't consumed it. And so in the process of this endosymbiotic hypothesis, in the process, somehow this bacteria that's inside another bacteria becomes a mitochondria. Mitochondria is called the powerhouse of the cell. Now, the reason this whole argument is important is that it explains, at least for evolutionists, how you go from a prokaryotic cell, which is like bacteria's, to a eukaryotic cell, which are the more complex cells that are in animals and, and humans. So, uh, so how do you get there? Well, they're imagining that you it starts off with this one bacteria that swallows another bacteria. It becomes this mitochondria. What's mitochondria? It's the powerhouse of the cell. Well, so back, the mitochondria is in the eukaryotic cells. So they're trying to explain how uh, this uh, organelle would have evolved. Well, there's, there's a variety of problems. And let me illustrate that with two guys walking down the street. 
one guy's carrying a jar of peanut butter and he's eating, you know, with his finger, uh, some peanut butter. And the other guy has a chocolate bar and they're not paying attention and they happen to run into each other. And sure enough, the chalk, the, some of the chocolate, uh, breaks off and some of the peanut butter mixes in with the chocolate. And one of the guys takes the chocolate and peanut butter and starts chewing on it and goes, wow, this tastes great. It's a new taste sensation. <laughs> I love it. Now, what is he going to do with that? He's thinking, of himself, I'm going to make a candy bar. I'm going right. to get rich with this new great taste sensation. But how is he going to do that? Something that is absolutely necessary in order for uh, the company that makes candy bars is that he has to convey the recipe to this company. He has to say, well, you take the chocolate, you mix it in with peanut butter, and voila, you get something like a Reese's, right? All right. So, but the point is, it takes information. Well, right. the symbiotic, the endosymbiotic hypothesis is all based on this idea that you're taking a bacterial cell that eats another bacterial cell. It magically somehow becomes a mitochondria. They don't explain that. And, and even if that magic did happen, it isn't going to solve the problem of evolution because it has to carry on to the next generation. You have to have code. The code has to get written into the DNA. If the DNA doesn't have the code for that mitochondria, that magical mitochondria, guess what? Even though that cell divides, it is not going to, the next cell is not going to have the mitochondria. You're going to have to start all over again. Right. If you don't have the ingredients, you can't make the next chocolate. Bar. You can't make the next chocolate bar. Right. I mean, well, that, that's suppose, how my brain's thinking about. Yeah. It. Yeah. No, it's kind of like that is, you know, if you're imagining, you know, you, you have this, uh, you make, you, you get this great idea. It's not a chocolate bar, but it's some great idea. The candy well, factory has to get, uh, get instructions on how to make mm -hmm. the candy bar. And that's, right. so that's the information that has to be passed on to the next generation of candy bars. Yeah, right. I mean, that makes sense. Yeah. So whatever it is, anybody, like you think about like a computer program, some, some guy is writing, maybe it's a, a game or something and he, he's doing computer programming and he's developing this game. Well, if it, if, if it's in his head and never actually gets into a computer program and actually works it out, then it's not going to benefit anybody. Just having, you know, the invention or the idea isn't enough. It has to get written down in order for it to get passed on to other people so it actually works. So what I want people to understand is that in the real world that we are born into, God has provided us with a whole variety of animals, which he calls kinds. And in these kinds of animals, is uh, a fully formed DNA. We, the, every animal, every insect, every fish, every one of them has fully formed DNA. 
And that DNA is not perfect anymore because we've been around for, for 6,000 years, but, uh, and there's been mutations and so on, but from an evolutionary point of view, what they're looking at in order for evolution to, to work without a God, if there is no God, no intelligence, they're starting from a blank slate. They're starting from, there's no intelligence and somehow this no intelligence has to create a code for nucleotides making up DNA. It has to create not only that code, but a double helix in, in order to develop this, this DNA code. And then uh, it's not just those four letters, but then you're talking about the code itself, all of the messaging that goes into any particular organism such as a bacteria. Where did that New Testament amount of information come from? Does it just pop, it, pop into the air? I mean, even before, before there was life when there's nothing at all, you don't even have um, the ability to cycle life and death. You don't even have the ability to, for, for mutations. So that's the, that's the whole issue of abiogenesis. I mean, it, it doesn't, abiogenesis has nothing. All it has is in their idea is this uh, prebiotic soup. It doesn't have yeah. anything. Mm. It doesn't have any guiding energy. It doesn't have anything that's in terms of intelligence that can bring together this idea of four nucleotides to create this code that can then be used to, um, to create something like a bacteria. You think about the immense complexity and I haven't, and I, I'm not gonna take the time to go through all five levels, but there's five levels of complexity for information. Dr. Werner Gitt talks about these five levels and it's just amazing to think about it. But hopefully people, as they're listening, they'll realize that even if you, let's suppose, see, I think the people that would listen to this, most people are going to be people who believe in God. And a lot of people are going to believe, they're going to go, well, you know, God got it all started and, and God used evolution. But when you understand this concept, you'll also realize that God would not use evolution because not only does it go against uh, Romans 120 and, and uh, a whole bunch of other things, but why would, you know, God is a jealous God. Why, why would God do that? But in addition, you have, uh, let's suppose you, you, you do start off with a bacteria and you're, you need to develop a eukaryotic cell. In order to, to do that, God would then have to take uh, and intervene into the world and again, create another whole set of, uh, of DNA for the next level of life. And then after that, God would have to intervene to add more information to create the next level of life and the next level of life and the next level of life. It does not make any sense. What we do see in the real world is that as a result of mutations, things, uh, DNA has a downward trend 
when it comes to the quality of information. And Russ and I talked about this last time that there's a good book for people to pick up called Genetic Entropy by John Sanford, easy to read book and provides the, uh, uh, the background information and the data to support what I'm talking about. That, that mutation and time does not build things up. It brings it down. It, it goes into uh, entropy. It, it breaks it down. You think that's the result of sin, that, that, it's, that things are being broken down? Absolutely. Oh. Okay. Remember, Adam and Eve, according to the Genesis story, they were perfect. Yeah. And with the introduction of sin, I believe then came uh, mutations, came right. illness, disease, and eventually death. Right. That's interesting. I, I, I mean, I, I've always... It feels like the, the more that I've talked to people about this stuff and like, it feels like when people say that God used evolution, it feels like that makes God feel to me like, like he's being passive and that he's not, he doesn't really have his hand in things that he's just kind of like, I'm going to get this thing started and uh, we'll see where it ends up. And so it, it's, it's always really interesting to hear like that if you actually take these things uh, and these concepts and, and you go back and you, and you go into scripture and you try to, you know, wrestle with these things. Like God had to have his hand in every single part of this. And I think that that's in, in, in one way, it's super cool. And in another way, it's really humbling because um, I mean, like it, it shows that like all that we have on this earth and all, and you know, all that we know is, is from God. It's not from random chance or, or whatever else. Cause that, I mean, I feel like that would demean God's, um, uh, supremacy in some way and, and i i don't that doesn't sit well with me so but but i think that that's i mean i think that it's really good and it's a really good um explanation um just really interesting stuff i mean i feel like we could talk about this stuff yes for i know we could go on five hours yeah. there's one more thing i want i would like to say all right one more little segment here do you know do you does uh carl sagan does that name ring a bell for you Sagan the pagan I, I've heard the name. I don't know much about it. Okay. Oh, wow. <laughs> he was an astronomer, <laughs> astrophysicist, I suppose. I don't know. Uh, anyway, he, he uh, was partly famous as a result of producing a PBS documentary series called Cosmos. And it started in 1980. The series started airing. There were 13 episodes and it was really well received. Carl Sagan, who wrote Cosmos, was famous for saying, the cosmos is all that is, or was, or ever will be. Now, what do you suppose that means? The, the cosmos, cosmos is God. <laughs> well, first of all, cosmos means ordered universe, which is fascinating in, in itself, that he would use that term cosmos huh. when it actually means ordered entity or more ordered universe. But so what he's saying is matter and energy. He's a materialist. Matter and energy is all there is. We are as a result of stardust. That's what we're here. But Carl Sagan is wrong. Well, he, he knows that, that now. I'm sorry? Carl Sagan is now a creationist. Yeah, <laughs> he's dead, right? <laughs> on, a, on account of having died and probably <laughs> going to Hades. So 
but even in Hades, he's apt to conclude that he was wrong. So that's a good way of putting it. Carl Sagan was wrong. And, and you have to ask why, why is he wrong about? So the cosmos is all that is ever was, or ever will be because of information. Information is not a material quantity. You cannot take uh, some pieces of material or energy and out pops information. Information Mm -hmm. comes about as a result of intelligence. It could be animals. It can be humans. It could be God. But information comes from intelligence. It does not come from a material entity. And so if you're in an elevator and if somebody needs proof that God exists, you can say to them, where did information come from? Uh, Maybe you know this number, uh, uh, the DNA in a single human cell has the same amount of information in it as hundreds of books. Uh, is that right? I don't know the exact number. Uh, yeah. Number Richard Dawkins talks me. about that. Uh, the insight, the encyclopedia Britannica, it would be to the level of all of the volumes of the encyclopedia Britannica several times over. I don't remember how yes, many times, right. like maybe three yeah. times over or something like that. And Richard Dawkins is an evolutionist promoter. Yes. Uh, so, he is. Uh, so yes, it's a huge amount of information. That's another factor. And, and, We're not uh, just talking about a little bit of information. And what was the source of that information? And uh, Richard Dawkins was asked one time, what is the source of that information? Um, uh, can you give me just one example of, uh, of a mutation leading to uh, more, uh, more information in the genome? And uh, he was silent for many minutes and the tape was running. And uh, finally, he uh, spoke up and he changed his subject. That's what you got to do. <laughs> that's, in a, that's in a video called From a Frog to a Prince. And I believe the uh, producer was Gillian Brown a um, long time ago. That's interesting. I mean, that, that doesn't surprise me that there's no they don't have an answer for it. But I mean, I still think it's it's fun to see. Um, when these scientists get, get themselves back. Oh, he was really buffaloed. Uh, he, (laughs) he just stared glassy at the camera for a long time and said nothing. And then change the subject. So that's what you got to do when you don't have the answer. You got to change the subject. Um, I guess that, I mean, that's, we're well over an hour, I think at this point and I, and kind of covered all the topics that we wanted to. Did you guys have anything else you wanted to, to say any final things you wanted to say to anybody? Well, I just want to say uh, thank you to all the people who managed to stick with us for an hour and a half. Very good. I congratulate you on your endurance. Right. And, uh, and I thank you for giving me your attention. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this is great. And I think that people have really, they enjoyed the first one. They're probably going to really enjoy this one. So again, if, if any of you are listening and you have any more questions, just send them in to me. I, I'm sure we could... Well, you know, I, I don't, I don't see this being the last time that we're ever on a podcast together. So maybe there's some other topics that come up and we can talk about them too, because I, I've, I've had a fun time doing these ones and there's Good. so much to Me talk too. about in science yeah. and theology. Yeah. Um, I love learning about it. And so, you know, yeah. this has been great. So thank you guys for doing this again. Uh, it means a lot. 
Um, and if you haven't already, go to evidencepress.com. Check those documentaries out. Um, check out all the, the stuff that you have on there, all the content that you have on that website. And uh, we're going to get that PDF file. You're going to be able to look at the PDF file, take a look at the 13 evidences, take a look at the 101 evidences, and, um, and yeah, just keep researching this stuff if you haven't. If you want to find the answers, you got you to gotta do the work. So um, I guess that's it for today. Thank you, everybody, for listening, and we will see you guys in the next one. Okay. Bye. Bye. Bye.